All right, Jesse. Amish stud last week was really something else. What's going on this time? When a multimillionaire is shot by his trophy wife's lesbian lover, it reveals a wild web of deception. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Jesse, Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, the podcast where true crime and human interest meet, and the stories are full of mostly regular people and seemingly regular relationships that can take an absolutely deadly twist. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please, please, please love slash murder a five-star rating (laughs) on your podcast app, and please help us help new people find the show. All right, Andy, this one is so wild. I kind of just read a blurb of this story, and I was like, yeah, this sounds kind of interesting. Oh boy, this is a roller coaster for sure. Um, I used She Wanted It All by Catherine Casey, who she wrote this book. It's like a 500 page book. It is meticulously researched. I mean, she she spared no detail. It's, have it's you a heard great of her book. Before? I have actually a couple of her books. She specializes in Texas murder, and she is a protege of everybody's favorite true crime writer, Anne Rule. Oh, no way. Yep. And of course, we've used Anne Rule in the past for Father of the Year, and we will definitely be using her in the future because she is the godmother of true crime. But yeah, we'll probably be hearing from Catherine Casey again. This is, I've read, I think, one or two of her books just for myself before. This is the first time I've used one of her stories, and it was great. I think the only problem I had was I had so much material and so many juicy details (laughs) that I had a hard time condensing it down to a tight episode for you guys. So you're going to have to really like keep up with me this episode because the life of this woman, Celeste Beard, who we're covering today, is so bizarre, so psychopathic, so manipulative. I honestly, like, I feel like I say this every time we cover one of these wild, manipulative women, but I think she's the worst one we've ever covered. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's kind of perfect. I feel like we need to just keep topping them off. So, you know. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, she's not winning for number of husbands. That one will always go to Marjorie in uh, episode number seven. But as far as some of the shenanigans this woman gets into and the fraud she pulls and the way she treats people – You will be beside yourself. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I don't want to oversell her. So why don't we jump right in to the dramatic reading? Okay. Sounds good. Okay. On October 2nd, 1999, just before 3 a.m., 18-year-old Christina Beard woke up with a start inside the lavish mansion on Toro Canyon Road in Austin, Texas. 
As her eyes adjusted, they focused on the shadowy blonde form of a woman standing silent in her doorway. Mom, what's wrong, she said. Her mother, Celeste, replied, I think it's the police. Why would the police be at their home? She darted into her twin sister Jennifer's room before remembering Jennifer was away for the night. Was there an intruder? She felt a shiver run up her spine as she dialed 911. It's EMS, the operator said. Your father has had a medical emergency. She ran to the front door to let the ambulance crew in while screaming, Mom, it's Dad. Something's wrong. Her mother stood stock still, seemingly frozen in place, when a deputy appeared, apparently already inside the house, and asked Christina if her father had recently had surgery. What? No. Why? She responded, confused, wanting to be at her adoptive father's side. His stomach's torn wide open. We've called Starflight to transport him to the hospital. Christina could hardly believe her ears. Steve Beard had been her father for four years. In that time, he had been generous, kind, and loving to her and her sister. Suddenly, her mother, previously calm and subdued, broke into the room, shrieking. What's wrong with my husband? What's wrong? The deputy looked her up and down in surprise. Christina knew why. Her adoptive father and mother had an almost 40-year age gap. She knew he looked old enough to be her grandfather. While her mother peppered the deputy with questions, Christine ran to be at Steve's side. She was horrified by the sight that greeted her in the master bedroom. The bed was covered with blood. Her father's intestines spilled out in front of him while what? the EMS workers hovered. Yeah, what? just like in his lap. Steve was conscious, but weak and clearly in pain. She couldn't get close, but she shouted, Dad, they're going to take you to the hospital. You're going to be all right. We all love you. I love you. He could barely make the words out, but he asked, Is your mother all right? Yes, she's fine, Christina reported through tears. Don't worry. Just get better. As they waited what seemed like years for the helicopter, Christina alternated between comforting her hysterical mother and checking on her gravely injured father. On a trip out of the bedroom, she heard an officer remark to another, Oh, I just found a shotgun shell. This is officially a crime scene. What? She thought. Shotgun shell? He was shot? In their home? The next moments passed in a blur of flashing lights and strangers in uniform as more police arrived to the newly designated crime scene and the helicopter arrived to carry her father away. Christina and her shell-shocked mother Celeste were put into a police car and rushed to the hospital where a doctor told them Steve's prospects weren't good. He might not survive the night. Celeste wailed and reached to her daughter to hold her up. When the doctor left, Celeste abruptly stopped crying. She looked sternly at her favorite daughter and said chillingly, Christina, the police are going to ask who could have done this. No matter what, don't mention Tracy's name. Who's Tracy? Who is Tracy? <laughs> yeah, that's not number one. <laughs> Would Steve survive the attack? Who could possibly want this jovial, generous man dead? Settle in to find out the answers to all of these questions and more as we untangle the complicated web of sex, murder, money, and deceit wrought by one narcissistic beauty who would stop at nothing to get what she wanted. So let's talk about the star of this story, one Ms. Celeste Maiden Name Johnson. 
I literally, like, I think from last week, from the story being spelled out, forgot that you do these ones where you like <laughs> you hanging. It's like I have yeah. short-term memory loss now, apparently. <laughs> yeah, now we have to go back and I have to tell you the whole story in chronological order before you can find out the cliffhanger. This is like, I do podcasts like old-timey radio. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I just forgot, you know? Yeah, I think I just rolled into the story last time. You did, so, yeah. yeah. And it kind of like <laughs> unfolded itself, but this, it's like origami, you know? Exactly. There's folds on folds on folds, <laughs> twists on twists on twists in this story. Get ready. Okay, this is, no, look, I had to go through her early life with like a breakneck speed because there's just so much in the story to fit in. So <laughs> buckle up, get ready, because she is a nutbag, Okay. Celeste was born February 13th, 1963, and adopted by Edwin and Nancy Johnson two days later. She was raised with her three other adoptive brothers and sister in Camarillo, California. It wasn't a happy home. Nancy had to be hospitalized in a psychiatric facility after she nearly drowned her children in a bathtub. So she did recover, but her children never really remembered feeling secure. I mean, for the older ones, their first memories were their mom trying to kill them. Yeah, no. Yeah, so that doesn't really engender some trust and loving feelings. (laughs) Yeah. Edwin lost his automotive repair business when the kids were in their preteens, and fighting over finances escalated into a separation and an all-out drag-out fight by 1977. The divorce was spectacularly destructive, and the couple waged war for three contentious years before parting ways. Oh. Celeste's brother, oldest son Cole, said, Dad was crazy, but Mom was vindictive. She brainwashed the girls to hate our dad. Yep. Yeah, not good. It's It was a nasty fight, so that's not good for anybody, especially children. So Celeste was particularly affected by the conflict. When she reached 14, she was so consistently violent with her family that cops were regularly called to their home. After putting her fist through a front door window, a judge ordered her to go to counseling. She's barely 14 when she's this violent. Mm -hmm. She saw several psychiatrists, but according to her mother, no one could pinpoint where her inner rage and violence came from. (laughs) Once, when Nancy asked why she was so angry, she said, I'm just trying to get your attention. Hmm. So Celeste was a tall, slender blonde with blue eyes, every inch the stereotypical California girl. When she was 15 years old, she met the man who would become husband number one, Craig Bratcher, a 17-year-old high school dropout who worked in produce with his father and brothers. Pretty soon after that, the previously studious Celeste was skipping school to hang out at Craig's, smoking pot, and drinking. So this relationship was not a healthy one. Celeste liked to rile Craig up. She would tell him stories of other men coming on to her or sexually harassing her. And then she would force Craig to confront them. Like that's kind of what got her off. So Craig ended up hit by a hammer after attacking Celeste's boss at a pizza place. And he later found out that the boss hadn't sexually harassed Celeste at all. Yeah, she just stirred stirred the pot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Craig's own brother, Jeff, talked about how one night at a party, uh, Celeste had like basically come on to him and attacked him with a kiss. 
and then immediately broke away from him and screamed for Craig, claiming that Jeff had come on to her. Psycho. Psycho behavior. Jeff was completely bewildered and, of course, became extremely wary of the blonde. During this relationship, Celeste's parents' divorce raged on. Celeste testified in court that her father had stabbed her, but there was no scar on her body where she said he had stabbed her, which I think something like a stabbing would have left at least a little mark. That wasn't the best uh, lie. Claim. And that was something that some of her family members believed, like she was set up by her mother to say. Okay. But it could have been something she came up with herself too. For the rest of her life, and this will come back very often, Celeste would also claim that her father began sexually abusing and raping her at the age of four. So we don't know if this is actually true or not. Because on one hand, Celeste lies about everything. So it's very hard to find the grain of truth in her lies. However, this would explain the simmering rage and the anger if there had been lifelong abuse, you know? Yeah, but that could also come from your mom trying to kill you. Yeah, (laughs) I think so too. Her father, of course, denied it. And her brothers claimed that they lived in a really small house. They were together all the time. All the kids were really close in age and like shared bedrooms and stuff. And they were like, there's literally no way we could have not known that this was going on. And her brother also said that during these court proceedings, her father passed a lie detector and it was determined that the allegations were false. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So her mother and sister claimed that they didn't know. There was no confirmation that it was true. They said it was maybe possible. And though her younger sister claims no memory of any similar assaults on herself, Celeste apparently tried to convince her younger sister that she had been molested too and she had just blocked it out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So crazy. Yeah. And they so were she's like, they you're were along all, for the ride. All the siblings weren't related. They were all adopted separately. They were all adopted from separate families. Yep. Wow. When Celeste was 17, she became pregnant with Craig's child. A miracle baby, she crowed to her friends, saying that a doctor had previously told her she would be unable to have children. That is another claim unsupported by medical records. I mean, why would a doctor tell a 16-year-old that she can't have children? She probably used that as an excuse to not use birth control. Probably. Like, we've had some people in our stories do that before. On December 6, 1980, Celeste married 19-year-old Craig while heavily pregnant with what turned out to be twin girls. Oh, no. So they're 17 and 19 with twins on the way. Wow. That's so rough. The twins, Jennifer Lynn and Christina Ann, were born two months early on February 6, 1981, weighing only 2 pounds 7 ounces and 2 pounds 11 ounces, respectively. Whoa. That's so little. Thank God they survived. Little. So right away, Celeste didn't take to mothering, and Craig was left to do the majority of the child rearing. Within months, months of the twins' birth, Celeste was having numerous affairs and Craig was exploding into jealousy-induced rages so badly that there were multiple police reports, restraining orders amongst the couple, one argument resulting in Craig spending four months in jail for brandishing a firearm during an argument, and Celeste, (laughs) this is the icing on the cake, 
Celeste later had an affair with a man she met in prison while visiting Craig on that same charge. Wow. <laughs> yeah, this is she that takes the cake. That really, it really is. That puts the cherry right on the top. How are you going to be running around having affairs when you're taking care of twins? Well, she wasn't really. But that's that's crazy. why. Like, it's crazy. And so I think I think that's why she was driving Craig crazy was because he was staying home with the kids. And she's just like not home. I also, I've had a baby. I can't imagine running around and having affairs when you have like a two-month-old, let alone two two-month-olds. So sad. Ugh, it's psychotic. But then, but then he's in jail, so it's like she but still she having must have affairs. had to. Yeah, she must have had to step up at that point. So I don't think Craig was the best guy. Obviously, they got into a lot of violent arguments. Yeah. But it's it's clear that she was really good at pushing his buttons too. So yeah. this was just one of those cases where these two people bring out the absolute worst, most violent, angriest parts of one another. You know, poor. She would bait him and lie to the police, including one time she broke her own arm in order to frame him for it. Oh, my God. No, you can't believe anything she says about her no. dad or any of that shit. She Whoa. is crazy. Apparently, she also find had out? there was a witness to it. Yeah. Wow. She apparently had a very high pain tolerance and, like, Another time, her daughter witnessed her slamming her hand in a car door to break something to say that somebody had done something to her as well. So she was willing to go the extra mile to back up her lies. Whoa. Mm -hmm. So the two finally divorced after only 18 months of marriage on May 18th, 1982. All of that happened within 18 months? <laughs> yes, and he was in jail for four months of them. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. Guys, this is, I mean, we could start a podcast just called Bad Relationships, but and this one. pretty much what this is. This with is like murder actually, on top. <laughs> with murder on the top, yeah. Yep. So even though they divorced, though, the explosive duo kept showing up in each other's lives, unfortunately. She ended up moving in with a woman named Gail, and it seemed like the relationship with Gail is quasi-sexual. Um, the two shared a bed, but it doesn't seem as though they considered themselves a couple. Also, Later on, um, Celeste is going to suggest that she didn't have any lesbian tendencies, um, but there is some evidence throughout her life that she had these types of relationships. Her older brother even talks about how he hooked up with a girl in high school, and he asked her afterwards if it was her first sexual experience, and she was like started laughing, and she's like, no, that was with your sister. Yeah, but I feel like it's that same thing. I mean, she even said when she was how old, four, that she was just doing violent – or 14, she was just doing violent shit for attention. It's probably just whoever she can get attention from. Honestly, I think – I don't think she has a sexuality or a type or anything. I think she just uses people. And I think it's like what she can do to get whatever she wants from them and she'll use whatever she has. And I don't even think she really enjoys – sex I feel like it's just like a way to get revenge on people it's a way to get money it's you know so this is what Gail said I hooked up with Celeste again after she left Craig said Gail she was living with a woman with a bunch of kids on welfare Celeste was on welfare too and working as a waitress at a pizza place she asked if I wanted to live with her and we got an apartment together at first it was fun then things got crazy when I left I fled for my life 
Years later, Gail would remember Celeste being ill-equipped for motherhood. When Gail returned home from waitressing, Celeste was dressed and ready for work, leaving the babies with Gail crying and dirty. Making their lives more chaotic, Craig often arrived at the apartment uninvited. To Gail, it seemed Celeste enjoyed manipulating him. Once, she found a love letter Celeste wrote him, which she'd signed with another woman's name. One minute they'd be fine, says Gail. The next, pots were flying, but I never saw Craig get physical. She'd throw things, but he'd just turn and leave. Since the apartment had only two bedrooms, the girls' cribs took up one room, and Gail shared a bed with Celeste. One morning, she awoke to see Craig glaring down at them. You're a lesbian, he said to Celeste. That's why you never want sex with me. Gail was horrified, but Celeste just laughed. So eventually, Celeste grew so controlling and possessive of Gail, like wanting to know where she was going, what she was doing all the time, and like doing weird stuff like keeping track of like money she spent, all that sort of thing, that Gail decided to move out after seven months of living together. So she tried to leave while Celeste was at work, but Celeste came home early and threw a butcher's knife at her. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. And then, after barely escaping with her life, Celeste went to the police and claimed Gail stole her purse with her welfare checks and food stamps. So the charges were dropped when the police could find no merit in Celeste's story. Without Gail to babysit, Celeste placed the twins in a foster home. No. Mm -hmm. So she gave up the girls And her daughter says, my first memories are of her leaving us with strangers, says her daughter, Jennifer. We never knew if or when she'd come back. That's so sad. In 1985. Isn't that so sad? Yeah. Oh, these poor girls. Like, they they keep bouncing back in and out of Celeste's life throughout this story. I mean, I think they would have been better off if she had just dropped them off and never come back. In 1985, Celeste hooked up with an old friend from high school named Pete Tim, and the two were briefly engaged. She fit right in with his family and was welcomed and adored by all. His family believed her sob stories about her childhood abuse, becoming a teen mother, and being forced to give her children away. While the two were building a life, Pete often brought her to the bank with him to make deposits. This turned out to be a huge mistake. As, following a visit, the tellers told him that his $7,000 savings account had been completely cleaned out by his wife being Celeste. When confronted, Celeste tearfully admitted she had already spent the money to hire an attorney to get the twins back. So, because he thought this was like a noble cause, Pete forgave her. But he did end up truly holding the bag just a little later when a few months before their wedding, Celeste convinced Pete to rent an apartment for them and asked him to give her the hefty deposit to pay the landlord. So Pete was apprehensive, of course, because he had just gone through the $7,000 theft with her. Oh, my God. But Celeste claimed her mother had actually already sent the money. It would just take three days for the wire to clear. In three days, Celeste was gone with the deposit money, the seven grand, and Pete's name was on the year lease, sticking him with a rental he neither wanted nor could actually afford. Oh my God. Isn't that terrible? And this was like an old friend. This was like a like a previous boyfriend from high school that she reconnected with and got engaged to. They were like two months away from getting married. 
Dan and I always joke about like short cons and long cons. But this is the shortest con ever. That's a very, she has a lot of short cons. Like wait, yeah. wait till you hear about this stuff. She's just I feel conning, like she, conning, conning. That's that was not smart. No. So it, she might have used some of the money to get her girls back because shortly after she left Pete, she moved to Arizona with her twins and her ex-husband Craig to attempt to start anew. Oh, my oh, God. Poor Craig just keeps getting pulled back in. In November 1986, Celeste became pregnant again and decided against Craig's wishes to put the baby up for adoption. So Craig didn't want to give the baby away, but he knew that, you know, they had a terrible relationship. It was constantly, you know, on edge. And they weren't great parents to the twins that they had. So he eventually resigned himself to the adoption by the time of the birth. But he was horrified when Celeste demanded 10 grand from the new parents. She told them it was for hospital expenses, but Craig knew that his insurance had covered all of the hospital expenses. So she was basically just selling her baby and milking the adoptive couple for money. Shortly after the birth, Celeste took the twins, the 10 grand, and Craig's tax refund and moved in with another man. Wow. Bye-bye, Craig. So, poor Craig. He attempted suicide this time because he was so devastated. And he cut his wrist, but he survived. So, he then moved to Washington State to seek treatment and be close to his mother, which was a good idea for Craig. His friends and family prayed he was done with Celeste for good i mean so, she took his girls from him too yep she she took the she was like they have a new daddy bye so that fall the twins were taken away from celeste again and put into foster care when a neighbor reported that the six-year-olds were being left alone in their apartment for hours at a time sometimes for the entire overnight oh my god that's so sad at least they had each other at least they had each other. Jesus. Six is their babies. Yeah. That's like real fucked up. Mm-hmm. Around this time, she met husband number two, a military man named Harold Wolf. Right away, Harold had a gut instinct that something was off with Celeste, but he was extremely drawn to her. So everybody, listen to your gut instincts. Listen to them. With a name like Harold Wolf, you've got to have some sort of gut instincts, right? <laughs> Right? Harry Wolf. <laughs> His parents didn't really think that one out. No. But yeah, he should have ran. He attempted to break off their relationship a few months in, but she told him she was pregnant. Whoa. Bitches mm-hmm. are fertile. Like all of these crazy all women. All of these are- crazy women are so fertile. Meanwhile, there's so many deserving mothers out there, like wannabe mothers, who have like are like Mother Teresa perfect, like already are making like sugar cookies in their aprons and they can't get knocked up to save their life. Life is so unfair. God oh damn it. Oh my god. <laughs> So he wanted to do the right thing. So he married her in December of 1988 and he almost instantly regretted it. A week after their wedding, she called him while he was on the base and she told him she lost the baby. I don't think she was ever pregnant. Okay. That's what I was going to ask. Yep. Around this time, Celeste started a job at Crystal Ice, an ice wholesaler, uh, where she met a kind woman (laughs) named Lou Thompson (laughs) from Crystal Ice. 
<laughs> or a, a meth place. <laughs> Wasn't Crystal Ice like a diet drink? It's Crystal Light. So. Crystal Light. Yeah, yes. Uh huh. I used to have um, some women come into Sansi, and they were actually great. I'm not like trashing them at all because they were fantastic regulars. But they would order water and vodka, and then they would mix little packets of Crystal yeah, Light. I remember people drink. did that. Yeah, <laughs> I thought that was did hilarious. You carry that around with you. Yeah, like out of their purse come these little packets of Crystal Light. <laughs> oh, Cheryl, what flavor do you have this week? Yeah, they would be. They'd be like, do you want pink lemonade or tropical mango? <laughs> okay, back to Harry Wolf and Celeste over here. So And Crystal Ice. Yeah, so Celeste starts this job at Crystal Ice, an ice wholesaler out of Phoenix. And she meets this wonderful woman. I think Crystal Ice is a good name for an ice wholesaler. Out of Phoenix? It's just yeah. everything is just I mean, it's, it's a good point. name for an ice wholesaler or a stripper. Either one out of Phoenix. <laughs> I can't. Oh, my God. So, yes, she met this wonderful woman named Lou Thompson who was like a second mother to her. Lou was 22 years older than Celeste. She only had sons. And Celeste definitely exploited her kindness and her desire to have a daughter. She said later that she didn't even know, like, how apparent it was that she'd always wanted a daughter. And Celeste, like, fit right into that part of her life. So she managed to get her girls back around this time. But she would leave them with Lou and the Thompson family for weeks at a time. So she could just do whatever she wanted. Mm -hmm. So in 1989, Harold left for a tour of duty in Japan. And Celeste and the girls moved in with the Thompsons. So while Harold's gone, she gets up to some trouble. She had an affair with a bartender and really got pregnant this time. Oh, my God. Yeah, you can't. That can't be from your husband, baby, if he's in Japan. No, he's in Japan, honey. That's some that's some long-distance sperming. <laughs> um, so, unfortunately, she lost the baby, and she ended up having a hysterectomy. So, she told Lou that she asked the doctor for it to prevent future pregnancies, which I think was a very good move. Yes. But later, she would tell others that it was due to ovarian cancer. But Lou, who was living with her and caretaking her during this period, said she never had any type of cancer while she was staying there at all. So crazy. I mean, I think a lot of the crazy people that we've talked about have been such narcissists that they've, like, wanted to procreate over and yes. over and over again. So that is a little of a weird attitude. Yeah, it's actually very responsible of her to realize that she was not – fit for motherhood and to stop that but it is very fitting with the narcissistic behavior to later claim it was because she suffered cancer yeah and have people pity you when you exactly yeah. it was always something she could bring up to as like a cancer survivor you know yeah yeah so after the bartender and the hysterectomy she ended up dating a middle-aged attorney who she briefly lived with and who gifted her with breast implants while still married to harry Yes, well, still married to good old Harry Wolf. And I don't know what Lou must have been thinking, but apparently she left the, her daughters with Lou and her husband. And she was living with one of Lou's sons, grown sons, who was like around Celeste's age, who was a gay guy. And they were like having fun. But eventually, like Lou's son had to kick her out because she was too wild. And just getting a boob job from an older. And getting a boob job. And she was dating whoever. 
but she had like wormed her way into Lou's life enough that she wanted to take care of her. So eventually the relationship between the Thompsons and Celeste soured when Celeste stole from them. They didn't know it was Celeste. Then when they discovered the burglary that they did not connect to Celeste, she convinced them to commit insurance fraud by hiking up the value of the item stolen. And then when they were caught and getting arrested for the insurance fraud, she denied any involvement with the Thompsons whatsoever. So she stole all their shit. Yep. And then helped them with insurance fraud and then <laughs> said she didn't know anything about it and kept all the belongings. Exactly. And so they eventually wow. found out that Celeste was behind the burglary as well, which they had no idea. But the cops weren't interested in prosecuting Celeste for that crime because she was part of the insurance fraud too so they were kind of like we don't actually like we believe you guys were all in on this like celeste took the stuff with your knowledge then you committed the insurance fraud to get the money and and so they just didn't arrest celeste on the burglary charges and they didn't have any proof that she personally had gotten any money from the insurance fraud that she convinced the thompsons to do so they couldn't prosecute her for anything in this case however the investigator who was looking into the Thompsons knew something was screwed up about Celeste. He just had a good feeling about her or a really bad feeling rather. And he ended up digging into her records because he was like, she was real slick about everything. And even the way the Thompsons told him how she convinced them to do the insurance fraud, he was like, I got to look up what this woman's filed for insurance claims for herself. So he found out that she had filed 12 separate fraudulent reports herself. And he ended up sentencing her, well, a judge did, in 1992 to pay $20,000 in restitution to the companies that she had defrauded. And did the Thompsons get out? Uh, the Thompsons eventually had to pay uh, $8,000 in restitution and they were put on probation. Um, but Lou said the most humiliating thing was that when they were in the courtroom being sentenced, like an entire like middle school class came in and the teacher was like, and this is what happens when you're a bad person. And they were just humiliated in front of all of these school children. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, but they learned that Celeste had stolen from them. So they cut her out. Yes. So they okay. kicked her out and they cut ties with her. So... By then, Craig, thankfully, had gotten himself healthy. He got remarried. He was doing a lot better. And he thankfully regained full custody of the twins. Amazing. Yep. So the girls described this as a bright spot in an otherwise chaotic and traumatic childhood. So they went to Washington to live with him, and everything was really good for a little while. So on August 24th, 1991, Celeste was a bride for the third time when she wed Jimmy Martinez while still legally married to Harold. So, so we got another not, one of those overlappers. Uh, they love it. God, they can't even wait. They're just so excited to get married. Was Harold like in Japan, like didn't even know what was going yeah, on? Yeah, like he, I think so. He came back from Japan and almost immediately left for Iceland or something. He had two deployments back to back. Okay. So he had 
no idea what was going on. I do not know if they were in touch at this point, what she was telling him, but he had no idea what his wife was doing and he had no idea she was getting remarried. So Jimmy was handsome, charismatic. He had a stable job managing and planning security systems. The couple promptly moved to Tucson. So Harold returned from his latest deployment in 1992 to find Celeste and all of his furniture and earthly possessions disappeared. Oh, which is gone. When he tried to rent an apartment, his credit came back with six pages of bad debts that he didn't know they had. Oh, no. Yep. Celeste's legacy was $60,000 in unpaid bills. My credit was toast, he says. She'd taken everything. My clothes, my books, my furniture, my photographs, even the stamp collection I started when I was a kid. That is so fucked up. So fucked up. (laughs) In his truck, the one thing she'd left behind, he drove to the East Coast, eager to forget her. There, he filed for divorce, and on December 14th, 1992, it became final. The process servers never found Celeste to serve the papers, and as far as Harold knew, Celeste never learned of the divorce. Years later, married and happy, Harold saw a woman resembling Celeste at a mall. My wife said my face was so full of hatred it scared her, he says. (laughs) He wants to, like, strangle this random woman. (laughs) Also, I mean, that was really, really shitty, but at least he got out with his life, right? And he got married later on. He was happy. But, like, could you imagine just going up to get free samples at Panda Express and, like, seeing a lady (laughs) that, like, looks just... He like smashes the samples down. Yeah, yeah, and you're no. like, fuck this orange chicken. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. He uh, had PTSD and it wasn't for, for sure. more. It was no. for Celeste. <laughs> was it from his occupational severe hazards that he had? Yeah. So the now 11-year-old twin girls visited their mother one time in Tucson and she made them pack all of her belongings for her upcoming move with Jimmy to Austin, Texas. So basically they came for like, I think a few days to visit her while they were technically, you know, living with Craig. And literally the first night they get there, she's like, well, we're moving to Austin and I'm going to go out tonight. So she left them in her apartment with moving boxes, instructed them when she hasn't seen her children for ages to pack her entire apartment and she left them with no food and no money so they're 11 year old kids and so she didn't come home all night long and the girls got hungry and they said that they scrounged up enough change and then they went in the dark holding hands down the street to a 24-hour convenience store where they scrapped together the change to buy one microwave meal so they could go home and split it. Oh, my God. She's disgusting. Disgusting. And she's just out cheating on Jimmy then. Yes, exactly. Oh, my God. Uh, The next morning when she arrived back home, Celeste had the gall to be pissed off at them that the girls hadn't finished the packing job. 
Wow. During that same abysmal visit, one of the girls asked her mother why she had married Jimmy. When Celeste claimed it was because he had a BMW, Jennifer pointed out that he actually drove a Pontiac. Celeste giggled (laughs) and said, no, silly. I'm talking about his big Mexican wiener. (laughs) I just had to add that detail. She said that to her 11-year-old daughter? She said that to her 11... Okay, who says that to their 11-year-old daughters? Who says that in general? Like, is Is that that a thing I didn't know? (laughs) An acronym for BMW? Big. We'll have to check. We'll have to Google Reddit. Check that. That's like on Urban Dictionary. Get it? Dictionary. (laughs) I can't. I can't. I'm crying. My God. Oh my God. Also, who calls it a wiener? Like a wiener is like a food group. That's like a hot dog. That's not like a sexual item. I know, but you can't call it a BMD. That's not like (laughs) that. That doesn't have a clever little (laughs) acronym associated with it. God, this Celeste. She's a mess, but she's got some one-liners. Oh. I mean, that's in, really the first one I've heard so far. So you're oh, okay. There's to... like another one later on. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I'm not yeah maybe she only has two one-liners. <laughs> oh, God. Oh. So in early 1993, Celeste and Jimmy moved to Austin, where Celeste scored a gig waitressing at the Austin Country Club, and she managed to regain custody of Christina and what? only Christina. Yeah. Well, okay. So – I don't understand exactly how this happened, but it seemed like from a very early age, she was preying on Christina specifically, being like, you're my favorite. You're the only one who loves me. You're the only one who cares about me. It's me and you against the world. She had emotionally manipulated Christina for some reason more than Jennifer. And Christina felt this insane pull to take care of her mother. Like her mother was a mess and she had to take care of her and it was her responsibility And I think at the time, Craig was doing really well. He was remarried. Everything was going great in Washington. And Celeste would call Christina like crying and being like, I miss you. I love you. Why don't you want to come live with me? I'm all alone. Your your father has your sister, you know. Oh, that's so sad to split them up though. Exactly. So Jennifer absolutely refused to leave her father. And she did worry about leaving Christina at her mother's mercy. But she's like, you're crazy. I'm not going back there. She's a nutbag, you know? Yeah. Celeste would have a strong pull over Christina for pretty much her entire life. Naturally, Celeste was cheating on Jimmy left and right and was described by a coworker as husband shopping within the rich clientele of the country club patrons. In the summer of 1993, after less than two years of marriage, Jimmy discovered that Celeste had opened secret credit cards under his name and racked up thousands of dollars in debt. What is she buying? I think she has some sort of shopping addiction because we are going to get into some of the amounts that she spends later. And they're insane. Like, it doesn't even make sense. I don't even know how you could spend that much money. And, like, where does she put it? Does she have, like, a secret storage unit? I don't know because they never say. Okay. It's just yeah, so it's a mystery. I know that, like, later on, like, you'll see when she, you know, marries a guy who gets has a lot of money later on, They one person said that they, like, went antique shopping and she spent something like 90 grand on a vase or something. Like, she spends on these insane luxury items that have high ticket value but don't take up a lot of room. 
So when Jimmy found this out, they argued, but he did eventually stay. And Celeste grew even more untethered after she lost another custody battle with Craig. And Christina was sent back to Washington, thank goodness. So Christina didn't want to leave her mom, but her mother was again doing things that were unsafe for her. And Craig and his wife got a lawyer involved and she was court ordered to return Christina. So it was in the midst of all of this turmoil that Celeste met multimillionaire Steve Beard while waiting on him at the club. Celeste was 31 and Steve was 70. Whoa. Mage age difference. He was a massively successful media executive who had worked his way up from a $15 a week shoe salesman job at Neiman Marcus to a media agency executive type role and eventually to owning the first CBS affiliate television station in Austin. Wow. So he's really successful and he's a completely self-made man. Steve had married the love of his life and mother of his three children, Elise, back in his shoe salesman days. And the two had had a loving and joyful partnership that lasted for over 45 years of marriage. So she was with him right from the get. Like they were young lovers. Like when he had nothing, she was with him. And they adored each other from the very beginning to the end. Oh, Steve, who was described as smart, boisterous, generous, and a real man's man, was devastated in October of 1993 when he lost his beloved wife to cancer at the age of 67. So he had been with Elise for nearly half a century, and he just didn't know what to do without her. All of their friends and family commented on how in love the couple had always been so long after, you know, the honeymoon glow usually fades. So I'm going to read to you like a little bit about what their friends said about them and also give you a little background on, you know, Steve and his personality. And he wasn't exactly a small guy. So this kind of describes like his physicality too. So you're just trying to make me cry. (laughs) Yeah, this is actually sad. (laughs) Living the good life, Steve loved food and drink and his weight climbed until he flirted with 300 pounds on his five foot 10 inch frame. (laughs) Yet his weight never seemed to bother him. On the golf course, he was too wide to bend down to tee his ball. His friends did it for him. When his friends drove in his car with him, Steve snickered at joggers. Look at that guy, he said playfully. Hell, he's all red in the face, huffing and puffing. You can't tell me that damned exercise is good for people. He told a friend, Elise loves me the way I am and I'm happy. That's all that matters. Life is good. And Elise did love him. Throughout their years together, they were a team. She adored him, said a friend. When she looked at him, you could see that she'd never stopped loving him. Steve felt the same way about her. So he is the owner of an entire television station. And each day at 5.30, he stopped what he was doing, straightened his desk, and then called Elise and asked what he could pick up for her at the grocery store. Do you need anything? Is there anything else I can do for you? He'd ask, taking out his pen to write a list. Oh, (laughs) isn't that sweet? Yeah. So I think he was just completely in grief. And, you know, you get into these roles with somebody else and you get used to having somebody in your life and in your bed and somebody to talk to. So I think that he was just completely ripe for the picking when Celeste met him because yeah. 
he was just looking for a partner. He had just lost somebody and he didn't know how to fill that hole in his life, you know? Ugh. And unfortunately, the very worst person came along and filled that yeah. role. So he had asked another, like a bus girl at the country club if she or she knew somebody who could be his house manager because Elise had always handled the management of the home. Okay. And she turned down the job, but she's like, oh, maybe Celeste would like to do it. So he had met her like once or twice when she waited on him and she knew exactly who he was and how much money he had. And she agreed to take over the job as the house manager. But like within weeks of doing this job, which was essentially being a housekeeper, like she's supposed to you know, make sure all the laundry is done. And it's, he has grown children. So it's just him. It's just him. It's not like she has to do an entire house for six children. You know, we're not talking about the, uh, the sound of music over here, the Von Trapp family. (laughs) And immediately she was sending the laundry out, ordering takeout. Like she wasn't doing any of the like housekeeper, house manager roles. She was like, I just decided it's better if I send this out. It's um better if I, you know, end up ordering in because I like burned the dinner or I did this. So she's immediately not doing any of the jobs. Wow. She doesn't care because she starts sleeping with him. Wow. How soon after? Oh, like within weeks. Wow. So within a few short months of working for him, Celeste moved out of Jimmy's house and right into Steve's mansion. With Steve's money on her side, Celeste resumed her battle to regain custody of Christina. At one point, Craig called the Beard House to try and work out some visitation details with Celeste, and Steve answered, so Craig tried to warn him. Celeste isn't who you think she is. Be careful. You think she's wonderful now? but she'll hurt you. You have no idea who you're dealing with. If you're not careful, you're a dead man. Yikes. That's a prescient warning over there, Craig. But of course, Steve just thought Craig had, you know, bitter grapes over losing her, you know? Bitter grapes. (laughs) I think it's called sour grapes. Sour grapes. (laughs) Mm. Yep. By August, Celeste's divorce from Jimmy became final, so that cleared the way for a potential marriage. And at the same time that Celeste was finalizing her divorce from Jimmy, Steve sold his shares of the TV station for a whopping $16.2 million. Mm -hmm. By early 1995, Steve was telling friends and family that the two were planning to get married. So everyone was alarmed at the pace of the relationship and very unsure about Celeste's motives. But they wanted to support him because he had been so miserable and he deserved some happiness in his life. Yeah, but not with this bitch. No. (laughs) Though perhaps he was a fool in love, Steve was not a fool in business and he got a prenup, so good for him. Good. And it was a shockingly good one. Um, It stated that if they divorced before their third anniversary, Celeste would get nothing, which is great. After that, she would get $500,000. If married when he died, she would receive $1 million and anything else he willed to her. The house that he lived in, that they were living in together, his mansion, was actually going to be willed to his children, not her. On February 18th, 1995, Celeste and Steve married at the very place they had met, the Austin Country Club. So some people say that was so that Celeste could like rub it in her coworker's face that like she had gone from working there to having a lavish wedding there where everyone had to wait on her. Wow. Uh Uh-huh. 
Steve's daughter, Becky, was in attendance, acutely aware that her father was making a mistake. It wasn't just that Celeste was a full 10 to 14 years younger than Steve's own three children. It was that she was fake and obviously not genuine about her love for Steve. Yeah, of course. Clearly. So Christina came to live with Steve and Celeste, and in early March, she noticed something odd. Steve, who fashioned himself a gourmet cook, made dinner, but she and Celeste set the table and served. That night, Celeste ground up pills in a bowl and then mixed the powder into Steve's food. What's that? Christina said. Sleeping pills. I can't stand being here all night with that fat fuck, she said. This way, (laughs) they have been married for three weeks at this point. Three freaking weeks. This way, he'll have a couple of drinks and pass out, and then I can go out. When she put the food on the table, Celeste beamed at Steve from every appearance the dedicated wife. Christina would later say that she was so used to her mother doing odd things, she thought little of it, never thinking the pills could be dangerous. Wow. Wow. Also, this is just the beginning of a greater trend. What's more than that? Celeste began to replace Steve's vodka with Everclear. Oh, mm-hmm. my God. And so she would dump out his brand of vodka, the bottles, and fill the bottles up with Everclear. So even if he made himself a drink, he was still drugging himself because vodka is generally 80 proof and Everclear is the strongest alcohol in the world at 190 proof. Holy shit yep so he usually had two martinis like his his whole life like ever since he was young you know he was one of that old school generation that always had like two cocktails like one at cocktail hour and like one through the dinner hour you know yeah yeah and he always had two vodka martinis and so all of a sudden she is giving him ever clear martinis and drugging him with sleeping pills nightly so dangerous with like that weight too Yeah, exactly. Oh, God, that's nauseating. And she's doing this right from the beginning of when they're married. In June, the whole marriage sham was almost called off when Steve discovered that Celeste had gone into his security deposit box at the bank, removed his late wife Elise's jewelry, and pawned the items for cash. You are lying. No. How disgusting is that? That is so bad. That Those were things that he had lovingly given to her over their entire relationship. And, like, not all of it was crazy valuable. It was, like, the first gold necklace he ever gave her when they scrapped together some money. Like, yeah. little things that had sentimental meaning that he meant to give to his daughter and grandchildren someday. Yeah. So this was, like, they'd only been married. So they got married in February. This is June. And he's, like, okay. So he called a divorce lawyer around this time when confronted with the evidence of her theft celeste went into hysterics she cited the money was something that she needed to get her children back which was totally bs because he already told her he'd give her anything she needed yeah she needed to pay off the twenty thousand dollars of restitution money for the insurance fraud that this was the first time he was hearing about that so he didn't know about that she also told him again about the abuse she suffered as a child and just how bad her life was and that she can't help herself. And then she checked herself into a psychiatric hospital. 
And I think that she definitely did this as a way to prevent him from feeling like he could divorce her. Like she's yep. like, this is like, I'm going to get mental help. I am injured. I'm the person who's been hurt in this situation. And now you are a monster if you divorce me while I'm seeking mental treatment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it was also during this period that she got her first official diagnosis of, of having borderline personality disorder, which I didn't know that much about. And Catherine Casey's description is really good. So I'm going to read it for you here. Cool. One of the most controversial diagnoses, BPD describes a cluster of personality traits often tied to early trauma. So, I mean, maybe if she was actually sexually abused. But her mom was trying to kill her. I mean, that's yeah, trauma. That's that's also trauma, yeah. yeah. Some experts believe that from birth, borderlines have biological tendencies to overreact to stress. Their emotions are volatile and violent, plunging from despair to euphoria. Even small slights become gaping emotional wounds. Without filters to keep them from fulfilling every desire, borderlines binge on food, sex, gambling, or compulsive shopping. They self-mutilate or threaten suicide, often using such threats to control others. Yeah. They fear being alone, even for short periods, and experience anxiety at any sign of being abandoned. Borderlines push people away, then panic when they leave. Often bright and witty, fun to be around, borderlines are the life of the party. Yet for those who love them, the road is a hard one. They breed chaos and judge people without context, based not on an entire relationship, but solely the most recent interaction. Years of devotion can be ignored for the slight of one unkind look. All the while, borderline personalities search for a rescuer, someone to save them from the disarray they create. You yeah. know who's a, a famous borderline? Who? Pete Davidson. Really? Yeah. I love Pete Davidson so I much. Like I know. How old is Pete Davidson? Oh, God. He's like 25, I think. 26? Okay. Yeah, he's a baby. All right. Off Pete Davidson. Back to Celeste, our least favorite BPD over here. Somehow, Celeste convinced Steve to take her back. I have no idea what kind of magic she pulled. Yes. Not only did he take her back, he paid off her $20,000 of restitution for the insurance fraud. Yeah, and yeah, it was nothing for him. But he also began building her a 6,000 square foot dream home. Oh, God. So this, this house building was absolutely a manipulation of Celeste. She told Christina it was necessary for Steve to sell his existing house and convince him to get a new one. She said, if he dies, the kids get it. If he builds or buys us a new one, it becomes community property. She is not dumb. No, and she is out for the money. Wow. So the new house was huge. It had a master wing, a wing for Christina, and a, like a ring, wing for Christina and Jennifer if Jennifer came. A guest wing as well. And it, all, it was all surrounding a koi pond, a pool, and a man-made stream. Whoa. Celeste designed her own walk-in closet and the architect was like, yeah, I'm thinking we'll have cubby holes for 300 shoes and purses. And she was like, oh no, I need 500. What? Oh my God. Who are you? Who are you, Mariah Carey? Uh, what is going on here? Are you the Kardashians? Are you a Card Are you Lisa Vanderpump? <laughs> um, Yeah. Wow. so many shoes. I think I have six pairs of shoes, and they're most, mostly hiking boots. 
I have more, but I work in fashion and I like think I have maybe 20. Yes. You have a good reason to have a lot more. If I were, had your job, I'd have at least 100. <laughs> yeah, I'm modest for my career. You really are. This bitch. She, this bitch. This episode should be cut, just hashtag this bitch. Really? <laughs> well, all appeared to be looking up for the reunited couple. Celeste's daughters were about to face yet another traumatic loss. Their father, Craig, depressed at the disintegration of his second marriage, committed suicide in July of 1996. Oh, I was wondering why they were both living with Celeste. Mm -hmm. His brother always believed that Celeste had something to do with the suicide. No Jeff way. said, we always believe Celeste pushed him to do it. She was the last person he talked to. And Whoa. apparently previously she had told him that she was married to a rich man now who could take care of the girls better than he ever could. Uh, he said, so Jeff goes on, he says, Celeste may not have pulled the trigger, but she loaded the gun. Wow. That's oh, so fun. So cruel after he has lost his wife too. So I feel so bad for these girls. Like they have just been ping-ponged back and forth through foster homes and temporary situations and the, you know they really genuinely love the thompsons who obviously cut ties with them after celeste screwed them over they don't have any sort of parental figure that's stable at all in their lives and now they lost their father whom they loved so they were sent permanently to live with steve and celeste and Celeste was now reunited with her girls and living in the mansion of her dreams. What more could she possibly want? Do well, tell. Well, it turns out everything. <laughs> Celeste had a serious shopping addiction, purchasing over $400,000 of furniture from a high-end store. Just one. Just one store. In less than three years. And frequently wow. spending up to $50,000 a day. A day? I thought you were going to say a month. Uh-uh. A day. She she talked about how she, like, her highest splurge was going out and spending 50 grand. She was like, but she routinely would go out and spend 20, 25, 30. And she's like, yeah, and one day I went out and I spent 50 in one day. Like, wow. that's well, more than people make in a year. If she bought that $90,000 vase, she actually spent <laughs> yeah, she did. One day. She did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, her spending was through the roof and Steve didn't really know how to control it. So, in February of 1997, a full year before she would have been entitled to the money under the prenup because they'd only been married for 2 years at this point. Yep. Steve funded a $500,000 trust for Celeste. Perhaps he thought she'd be happier with money of her own. To counsel her on investing the sum, he brought in a specialist from Bank of America. Six months later, every penny was gone. Wow. Celeste had spent it all, a half million dollars in six months. Yep. So from that point on, his financial obligation to her in the divorce was satisfied, though, because he had put, this is your money that you get if we break up. Yep. This is yours to spend and grow while you're in this marriage and all of your needs are being met. So even if they had remained married for a decade, if they were to divorce, he owed her 
nothing. And she'd leave the marriage with only her half interest in the houses because they had the big fancy mansion, but they also had a lake house. Is that how it works? Like if you provide a trust during the marriage that qualifies as the same sum as the prenup, then? That's how he outlined it in his prenup. So I think it's all about how you legally set it up. Got it, got it, got it. Yeah. So from this point on, like two years into their marriage, Steve was worth considerably more to Celeste dead than alive and divorced. So she had no incentive to divorce him at this point. She would have gotten nothing. Yeah. In 1998, she resumed her affair with husband number three, Jimmy Martinez, and the BMW, our boy BMW over here, and the drugging of Steve commenced so she could sneak out and be with Jimmy. She laughed about the affair with the twins and their friends in front of all of them, telling them when Christina asked why her knees were raw with scratches that sex with Jimmy got wild last night. She also used to do weird stuff like the kids would have their friends over because obviously they had this huge mansion with a pool and all this cool stuff. So they were kind of a hangout spot. Of course. And she would like provide dinner for the kids and then she'd be like, oh, got to go make my money. It's time for the Sunday suck. And like tell the kids that she had to go give Steve a blowjob every Sunday to earn her money. She like she, she she's like a more fucked up version of like Regina George's mom. Yes, exactly. And the cool mom. She was only seventeen when she had them, so she kind of was the young cool mom, you know. Oh my god! But like also like a prostitute. <laughs> well, yeah, that's what she used to say. I mean, it's just I can't imagine. I feel like the twins were just so used to her being. A crazy nightmare at that point that they were like, yeah, whatever. Meanwhile, even though she's, you know, ridiculing Steve behind his back and having an affair with Jimmy, she is still making insane material demands on Steve. That Christmas, Celeste told Steve she wanted a new diamond solitaire, like a ring she'd seen on a woman at the country club, a flawless eight-carat stone. Buy it for me, she cajoled. Under the tree, Celeste had professionally decorated for $3,000. Oh, man. I wish I was living in Austin during this time. Decorating <laughs> trees. Three grand to decorate a Christmas tree? God, Nathaniel would love that job. Um, <laughs> so she waited for a small box with her name on it, but it held a gold necklace and not a diamond ring. That That fuck is going to regret this, she told the Uh twins. While she fumed about the ring, Celeste seemed unconcerned about something else that happened late that year. Steve was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. His risk factors were climbing. His mother had died of heart disease at 67, his father at 75, and he was following quickly in their footsteps. Dr. Handley questioned him about his drinking habits. Steve said that he only drank two or three cocktails a night, Of course, he had no way of knowing that the drink Celeste served him contained pure grain alcohol. Poison. Poison. (laughs) On his chart, Dr. Handley noted the troubling results of Steve's blood test. His kidney functioning was decreasing, often a result of high alcohol consumption. Yep. That February, Steve started to become aware of Celeste's double life. First, he was contacted by Bank of America because his account had a $50,000 overdraft. Celeste had spent over $300,000 in a matter of months. 
Oh, my God. Second, Steve somehow discovered her affair with Jimmy. So he called his divorce attorney again and this time told Celeste his intentions for separation. Celeste went ballistic and now, of course, she needs a diversion so he doesn't divorce her and leave her penniless. And she threatens suicide with a gun. Her daughter, wow. mm-hmm, her daughter Christina, walked into the kitchen and found Celeste holding a pistol to her head saying, I'm going to kill myself. You don't love me. Nobody loves me. I love you, Christina pleaded, crying. Jen loves you. Steve loves you. We all do. No, none of you love me, Celeste insisted. Terrified, Christina called 911. The deputies talked calmly to Celeste, asking for the gun, and she finally handed it over. Let's talk for a second about how supremely screwed up this is to do to your children who just lost their father to gun suicide. Yep. I mean, they're already traumatized. I mean, this is an unbelievably callous, selfish, and insensitive thing to re-traumatize your children. Yeah. Also that you don't lose that money. So Celeste was rushed to St. David's Pavilion, a critical care psychiatric unit. It was there that fate would bring her to meet Tracy Tarleton, a smart, intense, and deeply troubled woman. And maybe, just maybe, the perfect patsy for all of Celeste's diabolical plans. Oh, no. Poor Tracy. She was a mark right from the get-go. Tracy Tarleton was 41 years old and committed to St. David's for alcoholism and multiple suicide attempts when she met Celeste. Tracy was an intelligent manager of an indie bookstore in Austin and an out lesbian. A friend described her as a young, handsome Kurt Russell. She had a husky voice, wore khaki pants, Ralph Lauren shirts, and topsiders. She carried herself and had the attitude of an adolescent boy, a splash of machismo. Oh my God. Hilarious. Yeah. So Tracy's alcoholism stemmed from a painful and abusive childhood, which is confirmed. One in which she was emotionally and physically, as well as sexually abused by her alcoholic, manic, depressive mother. Oh God. Yeah. I feel like it's worse when it's your mom because moms yeah. are supposed to be so nurturing. Yeah. Uh, so Tracy was immediately drawn to Celeste, not just because she thought she was beautiful, but because she also believed that they'd shared childhood trauma. Also, through surviving that trauma, Tracy had become a caretaker, the role she had wished one of her parents had taken with her. And she saw beautiful, damaged Celeste as someone who needed her love and protection. It seems likely that Celeste knew Tracy was gay and pegged her as a mark from day one. Yeah. Tracy says later that Celeste flirted openly with her from the very beginning of their conversations. She came on strong, Tracy said. We were both on heavy meds, but even then the attraction was there. The two became inseparable, spending all of the time they weren't in individual therapy at each other's side, and eventually the relationship became sexual, sneaking around in each other's rooms, stealing kisses, and more. Eventually, the two were not considered in crisis anymore and decided to transfer to a longer-term, posher clinic called Timberlawn, where they became roommates. There, the relationship blossomed with increased intimacy, both sexually and emotionally. Celeste cried to Tracy not just about her childhood abuse, but about Steve's abuse, which was categorically untrue. And how desperate she was to leave the marriage, but she'd be left destitute and without the funds to house or send her girls to school. 
Tracy bought this hook, line, and sinker. The two were also penalized when a night nurse interrupted them in an intimate moment. Oh, gosh. By the way, she does look a lot like Kurt Russell. Doesn't she? (laughs) Eventually, Tracy's insurance stopped paying for her treatment, and she was forced to return to Austin and work. Obviously, Celeste was doing all of this on Steve's dime. Yeah, out of pocket, baby. Upon her return, Tracy wrote the following note to Celeste. You are so beautiful, she wrote. I think about your long, silky body and your incredible long legs, and I just can't stand it. And then I think of your incredible face, and I just want to get in my car and drive to Dallas. That's where the treatment center was. Please take care of yourself. Do your work and get better. I love you. T. Oh. So Tracy is obviously sprung for Celeste. Yeah. When Celeste was released and returned to Austin, the affair only deepened. The women saw each other nearly every day. In May of 1999, yeah, like Celeste was really hooking up this codependency already. And what else did she have to do? She had two daughters that were in the senior year of high school. She has no job. Yeah. Just spending Steve's money and hanging out with a lesbian lover. Who's just a paycheck. Exactly. In May of 1999, Celeste even attended Tracy's niece's wedding as her date and introduced herself to everyone as Tracy's girlfriend. Celeste threw a party for Tracy and her bookstore employees at her lake house, where the two spent the evening publicly canoodling, enjoying drinks and pot brownies. That night, Celeste took Tracy to the master bedroom where they had sex, and Celeste whispered, after Steve's dead, we can live here together and wake up like this every morning. I was going to ask you if um, Tracy knew that she was married and and all of that. She She did. did. Okay. Yeah. It was absolutely everything Tracy had ever dreamed of. However, behind closed doors, Celeste ridiculed Tracy just as she ridiculed Steve. When her friend Denise asked her about her relationship with Tracy, Celeste said, that dyke's in love with me, but I told her I don't eat at the Y. <laughs> so terrible. So terrible. Yeah. So that's my that's her second one-liner of the show. Wow. Wow. Also, evidence says you do, Celeste. <laughs> Meanwhile, Steve was desperately trying to repair his broken marriage. For six months, while Celeste had been in and out of treatment, he had cared for her teenage daughters during their senior year of high school and held down the homestead. So he needed to make a decision. Remember, before all of this, he was ready to divorce her. Yeah. So, like I was saying, she previously was about to get divorced. Then she goes away. And she's gone for six months while he's raising her children holding down the fort, and by the time she gets back, he is desperate to figure out whether they can fix their relationship. And so his answer to this is so insane. He decides to take her on a luxury one-month-long tour of Europe. Yeah, I figured. Like, she doesn't deserve that. She's, She's getting a reward for her terrible behavior. So he plans it for when the girls are going to be in college in that fall. And he's, his idea is that he's going to take away all of the worries from their life. And they're just going to have this luxury trip. They would travel first class everything, chauffeured in limos. They would eat in Michelin star rated restaurants. And they would stay at five star hotels. And they were going, this itinerary sounds amazing. They're going to 
Berlin, Dresden, Munich, Lucerne, Bern, Dijon, Paris, London, York, Scotland, Stratford-on-Avon, and Dublin. Jesus. I mean, it's a dream trip. That Those places are not cheap. And no, they're the most expensive cities in Europe. Yeah. So the travel agency charged Steve $53,000 for the arrangements. So Steve was completely invigorated by this. He was so excited about this. He didn't even want to originally buy travel insurance because he's like, nothing could stop us from taking this trip. Meanwhile, Celeste only looked at it with disgust and dread. I can't spend an entire month with him, she told the twins. This will be torture. Wow. Wow. Oh, God. This bitch. I think that should be the episode name. I think it should too. This bitch, (laughs) Celeste Beard. So over the summer, Celeste planned a road trip to take the twins and their boyfriends to Washington State so they could bring home some of their late father's things. Steve insisted on coming along because he hadn't seen his wife in so long. And in retaliation, because she didn't want him to come, Celeste openly drugged him in front of the teens, still grinding the pills up and putting them in his food, but also giving him sleeping pills when he asked for asthma medication. And at night or when he took naps, she would unplug his sleep apnea machine and smoke a cigarette right in front of him. Whoa. Mm-hmm. And the teens were the most horrified when Steve, who had been drugged repeatedly throughout one day, got back in the car and wet his pants while sleeping during the drive. Celeste pulled over, woke him up, and berated him for being disgusting, and then proceeded to torture him about it and make fun of him about it and make all these digs about it for the rest of the trip until finally, like, feeling really bad because she's just drugging him and tainting his air supply, not giving him his right medication. He finally took a flight home rather than stay on the trip. Whoa. It's just, I can't think of anything worse. Like, the kids know that the reason he wet his pants is because he was on all of these pills. He's completely passed out. Of course, it happens. And then she has the balls. And he's 70. Yeah, to mock him. To just be like, ew, you're such a disgusting pig about it. Which, like, even if, like, it was just an accident, like, you don't do. Because that's terrible and cruel to somebody. But especially when you caused it. I mean, she's heinous. It's disgusting. Mm-hmm. In August, the murder attempts began. If we didn't think she was bad enough. And is this so, the same year? Is this the same year as their marriage? Or is this like a couple years later? This has been almost four years of marriage. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So the murder attempts began with Celeste instructing Tracy to concoct a recipe for botulism that she found in a book called The Poisoner's Handbook. When she returned from a trip with the twins, she picked up the homemade poison that Tracy had made and mixed the contents into Steve's chili dogs. Fortunately for Steve, it did not have the desired effect and he was fine. The fat fuck didn't even notice, didn't even upset his stomach, she said to Tracy. By mid-September, Celeste was in a panic. She didn't want to go on the Euro trip, and she desperately wanted Steve dead. 
In early September, she told Tracy she was increasing the amount of Everclear and sleeping pills she was giving him nightly, hoping the deadly combination would finally do him in. Ugh. One mid-September night, Celeste called Tracy and told her to come over right away. Steve was passed out in the kitchen, and Celeste instructed Tracy to place a towel around his neck and then place a plastic bag over his head to suffocate him. The towel was supposed to uh, prevent the plastic bag from cutting into his skin and leaving marks. She said she saw it on a true crime show. And did Tracy do it? So Tracy started to do it. But when Steve's body began convulsing, she freaked out. She dropped the bag and she cried she couldn't do it. Eventually, Celeste called 911 for an ambulance to come get Steve. At the hospital, his blood alcohol content was 0.17. Whoa, that's crazy high. And a social worker was called in to discuss his drinking. Steve swore he had only had two or three vodkas, and the social worker made a note in his chart that he had a drinking problem he wouldn't confront. Wow. Mm-hmm. Did any red flags go off for Steve at this point? I don't think so. I mean, I would like to think that they would have, but we don't, you know, just like it's always the case with our victims, we don't get their perspective, unfortunately. Um, I know. There's so many times, like the only time we know that he was worried about Celeste was around financial matters because that's what he would contact the divorce attorney about. But yeah. she always got him to go back. I I don't think he thought that she would try to kill him. I, I think that that would have been very surprising to him. So three days after that attack, Steve had another seizure and was returned to the hospital. The doctors were very deeply concerned about his extremely damaged kidneys. Celeste was right. Her constant drugging and drinking of him would eventually kill Steve, but not fast enough for her. Shortly after this, Tracy had a friend return her shotgun to her and mentioned it to Celeste. So apparently... For some reason, Tracy mentioned she had access to this shotgun now. Celeste kept bringing it up. Five days before Celeste and Steve were scheduled to leave for Europe on Wednesday, September 29th, Celeste brought the shotgun up again. I can't go with Steve, she said. If I go, I won't come back. I don't know how to get away from him. He'll hunt me down. And if I stay, he'll see that I don't survive. As Tracy listened, Celeste told her that Steve ridiculed her and pushed her to kill herself, telling her she was too stupid to bail water. I want you to shoot him, she said, putting her arms around Tracy and kissing her. No, Tracy said, pulling away. I can't do that. Celeste covered her face and sobbed. Then you might as well say goodbye to me. If I leave on that trip, I'll never come back. Go, get your gun, and I'll use it on myself. I'll do it quickly before I change my uh -huh. mind. Then at least he won't ever touch me again. Inside, Tracy fought a vicious battle. She didn't want to kill anyone. It was Celeste's problem, not hers. Yet, she felt she couldn't stand by and let Steve drive her lover to suicide. If she told her no, Celeste could do as she threatened and kill herself that very night, driving off a freeway or finding a gun and pulling the trigger. She believed Celeste was powerless with Steve and desperate. I have no one else I can turn to, Celeste pleaded. Fine, Tracy said. I'll do it. Smiling, Celeste took Tracy's face in her hands and kissed her hard on the lips. 
Later, in a strange way, it would all make sense to Tracy. All her life, she'd searched for the reason she'd been born. I always felt unnecessary, she said. I thought finally I'd found something I was necessary for. I had a purpose. I had to kill Steve to save Celeste's life. Ugh. Mm-hmm. So, this brings us back to the night of October 2nd, 1999. They've been married for a little over four years. So Celeste made sure Jennifer, her boyfriend Christopher, and their friend Amy were all at the lake house and even dropped off their dog with the kids. So when Tracy snuck in, the dog wouldn't alert Steve to her presence. She insisted Christina come home alone without her boyfriend that very evening. I think that this is because she trusted Christina the most out of all of the children and she needed an alibi slash witness. Plus, I think Mm -hmm. she really believed that Christina would just go along with whatever she said. Yeah. The day before the shooting, she walked Tracy through the home, advising her as to where to park, how to enter the house, and how to find Steve's room in the dark. She instructed Tracy to wear head-to-toe black. Tracy was concerned about the shotgun shell that would be dropped when she fired. Celeste told her to pick it up, and if she couldn't find it, Celeste herself would go in the room and pick it up before the police arrived. Celeste then gave Tracy vinyl gloves and a sheet of plastic to cover the front seat of her car. She was instructed to drop the plastic and clothing she was wearing in a dumpster that Celeste had checked out that had no security cameras on and was not visible to the road. So Celeste planned everything and just told Tracy what to do. Okay. She instructed Tracy to return home after the shooting, take a shower, clean her gun and by the next morning this would all be over and the two would get to be together Uh uh-huh the next evening tracy did exactly as instructed a little after 2 a.m she left her house she drove to theirs and head to toe black she crept into the beard home and slipped into steve's bedroom there she could see his form beneath the sheets she stood exactly five feet away as instructed by celeste Celeste had instructed her to shoot him in the stomach. Thinking she'd only need to replace the sheets and the mattress then, the blood wouldn't splatter on the walls and carpet like it would if she shot him in the head. Oh, my God. It's just so unbelievably cruel. A gut shot is excruciatingly painful versus a clean execution shot. So she's thinking about preserving her bedroom set over, A, being sure that she actually gets the job done, and B, like, worried about how he's going to feel about well, any yeah, of this. she spent $400,000 on it. <laughs> That's true. Jesus Christ. And Tracy did exactly as she was told. She raised the gun and pulled the trigger. It met its target, and Steve cried out. He sat up and seemed to reach for something. Terrified that he might have a gun in his bedstand, Tracy took off, leaving the shotgun shell that would spell disaster for her and left in the night. Steve was, as we know from the beginning, alive but terribly wounded. He called 911, and based on the 911 call, he had no idea what had happened to him. He didn't know he was shot. So this is a little bit about the 911 call. The voice on the telephone was gruff yet polite, confused and frightened. Nature of the emergency, a woman dispatcher asked. I need an ambulance. Hurry, Steve told the 911 operator just before 3 a.m. on Saturday, October 2nd, 1999. 
3900 Toro Canyon Road. What's going on there? My guts blew out of my stomach, he said. Are you alone? My wife is somewhere in the house, Steve said, groaning. Okay, help is on the way. How did this happen? I just woke up and they blew out of my stomach, he said, fear clouding his voice. I can't move. I'm holding them in. Oh, sir, we're already on the way. Call my wife. She's in another part of the house, he said, repeating the phone number. The woman hung up. So he he didn't know. He was just awoken by the gunshot. He didn't, I mean, he didn't hear the gunshot by what happened to him. So he like just literally woke up with his guts spilling out. Of oh, Jesse. Oh, it's oh. terrible. And it should never happen to anyone, let alone such a wonderful guy. Oh, so Gosh. eventually Steve was medevaced out to the hospital where the twins, their boyfriends and friend Amy all convened. Well, the police questioned Celeste. Christina told the others about Celeste's odd warning about mentioning Tracy to the police. So all of the kids did know about Tracy. They had, like, hung out with her. She had been by the house. They had partied with her. And they had even caught Celeste and Tracy in bed together once. In flagrante. In flagrante. Um, But, like, Celeste had so many affair partners that I don't think it registered to the kids that this was something – like, honestly, it's so sick, but these are really good kids, but they didn't do anything to stop any of these behaviors because she had conditioned them to think, like, her drugging Steve was normal, her infidelities yeah. were normal. She, like, played everything off like it was silly and fun and light. And so I think this is, like, you know, obviously Steve is near death, and they're realizing, like, her games are not for fun, finally, no. you know? So... All of the teens decided to come clean with the cops, even Christina, who was completely distraught about going against her mother's wishes at this point. And they decided to all tell the cops, like, yes, it's probably Tracy Tarleton. Okay. So they went behind Celeste back and did that. The very next day, Celeste was on the phone with Steve's bank. I mean, we're talking – It this happened at like 3 in the morning. The next yep. morning, she's on the phone with Steve's bank trying to get them to give her access to his accounts. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Uh, which they denied. So they told her like, hey, we know you guys were going on this fancy trip. Get the money back from the the Euro trip place. And also, we also know that Steve took out ten grand in uh, traveler's checks. So you can live on those. $10,000 isn't an amount to sneeze at, you know? Yeah. Celeste was so pissed off. Meanwhile, Tracy is questioned and her shotgun is confiscated. After oh, the no. police match the ballistics, she is arrested for the attempted murder of Steve Beard. She was arrested in five days. So he's still alive? He's still alive. Like, survives this? Yes, for a little while. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah. Steve's doing great. I mean, he's not oh. doing great. Let's not overstate it. But he's alive. He's hanging in there. Oh, Yeah. My also, God. this wow. is crazy. Tracy gets out on $25,000 bail, which does not seem like enough to me for attempted murder. No. Especially when it's attempted murder, because it kind of makes me think the person might go back and try to finish the job. 
Yeah, I know, but she, I mean, I'm sure she just is so distraught. Ugh. Oh, absolutely. So, of course, they also question Celeste about her involvement. She denies any involvement with the murder plot. She says that she was never in a relationship with Tracy. Tracy's just this crazy person obsessed with her, mm -hmm. and she must have killed Steve in a delusional state, thinking that if she got rid of him, she could be with Yeah, because they met in the psych ward, so she's just pinning exactly. Yeah, She has the perfect patsy. Meanwhile, Steve is in critical condition, but yay, alive, like we just said. So for a man who was overweight, had an enlarged heart, compromised lungs, failing kidneys, and a wound that could kill even a perfectly healthy person, he was like really, really hanging on. This guy is such a fighter. So Steve like super fought for his life. Apparently like when the, the twins would go visit him in the hospital and stuff, he would like still make jokes. He saw his children while he was in the hospital and eventually, uh, in, like two months after his shooting, he even managed to recover enough to be allowed to return home. Wow. I know. Think about how mad Celeste must have been. I was going to say, but like, go live with her? Yeah. Ooh, I wouldn't do that. Yeah, I don't know why he decided to do that. While her husband was recovering, Celeste was spending her time gaining access to Steve's money, remodeling their house, and arranging rendezvous with Tracy to keep her from implicating Celeste. By the time Steve was to return home, this has only been like two months, Celeste had managed to spend $550,000, including seventy-five dollars she paid for a home security system installed by none other than Jimmy Martinez, husband number three, whom she was still sleeping with. So apparently he, he invoiced her for $8,000 and she gave him a check for seventy five for some reason. Oh and, my God. And she's like, oh, actually cash that and then just sign the remainder of the balance back over to me so she could put it in a new account. So she was like yeah. money laundering essentially. Through, through BMW. <laughs> through BMW. So – she was telling the bank she was making all of these home repairs to make the home more comfortable for Steve when he got home because obviously he was going to be in a wheelchair. And mm -hmm. she did none of them. She was doing stupid stuff like built-in bookshelves and things that she wanted that were completely cosmetic. And <laughs> he didn't even have a ramp when he got back, despite spending over half a million dollars. She also refused to hire him a home health aide or nurse. The doctors and twins begged her to reconsider, but she wouldn't budge. She told Tracy her plan was to take care of Steve by not washing her hands ever and killing him by sepsis. Mm -hmm. So even Tracy tried to talk her out of this one because if Steve died, Tracy was going to be up for capital murder. And we're talking Texas kids, so that carries the death penalty. But Celeste would not be swayed. The teens, disgusted by Celeste's actions and now painfully guilty of looking the other way all of those times at Celeste's abuse of Steve, they began to actually collect evidence against her. Good. Yep. So they squirreled away photos and letters that proved the intimate relationship between Celeste and Tracy and even uncovered a receipt that showed Celeste had purchased a wedding ring style gold band for Tracy in the Christmas after the shooting took place. So after she's been arrested, 
and let out on bail for killing her husband, which thus says she has nothing to do with. She buys a gold ring for this woman. And how did they know it was for that woman? Uh, because she had Christina go pick it up. So that's why Christina had the receipt, too. Okay. And Christina knew that it was for Tracy, and later Tracy was wearing it. So, sadly, in January of 2000, after a valiant struggle, Steve succumbed to an infection and died. The cause of death was noted as septic shock and overwhelming <gasps> infection. Yep. There's even a picture. She did do it. Did do it. There's a picture of Celeste's hands covered with sores. Like, she had somehow made herself real sick and transferred it to him oh my god that's like the most brutal one i think we've done oh just revolting within hours of steve's death celeste called his banker and demanded all access to his accounts she did this before she even informed his children that he had died the three eldest beards hadn't even known he was back in the hospital and had no chance to say goodbye. He had been in the hospital for almost two days at this point. She could have called them to say, your father's really sick. Completely devastating. The detectives were aware of Celeste's bizarre behavior and started building a case against her. They also began the process to charge Tracy with capital murder. No. Mm -hmm. Celeste is now free and clear and wants to rid herself of the last remaining thread between her and her husband's untimely death. While partying with her friend Donna Goodson, a receptionist at the hair salon she went to, she asked Donna if she knows anyone who would kill Tracy for money. You are lying. She turns on her. She turns on Tracy. Now she's looking to snip the last string. Oh, my God. Just in case the manipulation is not enough, she wants Tracy out of the picture. So she doesn't turn on her. Exactly. So Donna later, you know, comes clean about all of this, and it's in the court records. She was eventually approached by Celeste and said, and Celeste said, how much would it cost to get rid of Tracy? Donna smiled and said, for the right price, you could get rid of anybody. Do you know anyone who could do it? Well, there's this guy, Modesto. He's part of the Mexican mafia, Donna said. How much do you think Modesto would charge, she asked. About 500 Donna answered, taking a long drag from her cigarette. $500? $500, yeah. One can what? <laughs> well, wait, wait. What kind when of low brown Celeste asked. Donna smiled. He'll need the money first. So later, Donna insisted that she never intended to hire anyone to kill Tracy and that from the very beginning, she was playing along to squeeze money out of Celeste. It was a you don't con a con situation, she said with a okay. smile. So Donna's the worst, but there's like literal a chapters about all of the money she gets out of celeste by being like oh modesto's out he can't do it sorry after she'd already given her like fifteen hundred dollars then she's like i have this new guy but we have to give him a thousand dollars up front and Celeste's like oh jesus okay so she just keeps giving donna money <laughs> i kind of love donna no she's just take taking her on a ride and meanwhile 
Celeste is like living the high life and Donna's like her only friend at this point. So she's taking Donna on girls trips to casinos. They're going to New Orleans. They're like partying it up and it's all on Celeste Bill. And and she's just taking all of her money. <laughs> so back on the homestead, while Celeste is running all over wherever, the teens are getting convinced that obviously Celeste was the mastermind behind this and they continue to gather their evidence. Celeste can tell that Christina especially is pulling away and she starts raging against her because now Christina's like, I think she really killed our dad and yeah. he was the only kind, good person in our life and she stable. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So Christina was like putting distance between her and Celeste loses it on Christina so she st- threatens to cut her college tuition off. She's going to take her car back. She threatens restraining orders, like if Christina and Jennifer set foot at the home again. It's it's like insane to the point where Christina begins saving all of the absurd voicemails and recording their phone conversations. And she says like some of the most horrible things, like calling her an ungrateful little bitch and like saying stuff like, oh, you think I'm a bad parent? Is it worse than my dad who stuck his grown man's penis in me when I was a four-year-old girl? Is it worse than that? Am I that bad of a parent? Like, just hurling whatever nasty abuse she can at these poor girls. Especially Christina, yep. So finally on one of these recorded calls, it comes up that Donna has something on Celeste and Christina's like, what, mom? What could Donna possibly have on you? And she's like, uh, well, I hired somebody to kill Tracy and Donna knows. And she says that on the recorded call. Whoa. Mm-hmm. So at this point, the girls cut all ties with their mother. They go and live with friends and like one of them goes to live with their boyfriend and they hand over all of the evidence to the DA. Okay, good. Good for them. But I mean, that's brave. I mean, especially Christina so has been – emotionally manipulated their whole lives they're only 18 years old you know yeah that's so scary so somehow in the midst of all this craziness celeste finds the time six months after steve dies to marry husband number five wow. his name was spencer cole johnson he was a 38 year old bartender she had met through donna goodson so that means he's a real mensch i'm sure <laughs> In a somewhat interesting twist, her marital name had some symmetry now because her maiden name was Johnson too. So if you count all of her married names, her full name would have been Celeste Johnson Bratcher Wolf Martinez Beard Johnson. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yeah, that is some name. Really came full circle there. So Tracy found out about the marriage in the newspaper. Because Tracy's in jail. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. So she's in jail. And she was like, you know, staying mum about the whole thing because she was still loyal to Celeste. So all of this time she had been holding out hope that she would somehow be acquitted and get to live happily ever after with Celeste. All the while, Celeste was sleeping with multiple men marrying one of them and plotting to have tracy killed wow wow talk about betrayal so to make matters worse for tracy she was indicted on capital murder her bail was set this time at five hundred thousand dollars 
So she arranged for cat care in her home to be sold and lacking the funds for bail. She was in prison, like I said, when she found this out. Yeah. So she's lost everything for this woman who didn't give a fig about her. A fig. (laughs) That's my new thing. I'm going to say it all the time. Okay. Big Newton about her. It was finally dawning on her that Celeste had set her up and thrown her away. I wondered if Celeste broke me in gradually or just found a way to make me more malleable. She wanted Steve dead and she knew I'd do it for her. So at this point, Tracy's attorneys beg her to make a deal with the DA to get a reduced sentence. Yeah. Until now, Tracy had resolutely denied Celeste's involvement to the police, but the she did come clean to her attorney. So they knew the real story and they were like, do not go down for this. But once Tracy finally agreed when her trial is only two weeks away, the DA at that point didn't know if they wanted to make a deal because they had an ironclad case against Tracy and it was pretty circumstantial against Celeste. So it seemed risky to give up a sure thing for a long shot. So eventually the DA called Paul Beard, that's Steve's son, and asked him how he'd feel about his father's killer getting a plea deal for evidence against Celeste because that meant obviously she was going to get a reduced sentence and he wanted to check to see, you know, how the victim's family felt about that. Oh, that's really nice. I think that's really, really nice. Steve's son was like, oh, hell yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Is that the DA called? That the DA called, yep. Yes, absolutely. Tracy was a pawn. We want Celeste. The family was unequivocal about that. Good. So the DA called Tracy's lawyers and they were like, let's do this thing. We've got a deal. On March 28th, four days before her trial was set to begin, Tracy took a polygraph to prove she was telling the truth about Celeste's involvement and passed with flying colors. The very next day on March 29th, 2002, Celeste was arrested on three counts, injury to an elderly individual, murder, and capital murder. Crazy that that was two years after he died. Yep. Wow. Due to her wealth, they held her on an $8 million bond. So she could not get out of prison. Also, bet she wished she hadn't spent all his money when she's sitting in prison. Yep. Angry over the insanely high bail, Celeste dumped her attorney and hired the famous Houston defense attorney, Dick DeGarren. Working alongside Dick was Catherine Bain, both of whom have ties to our previous cases, which is so fun. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) I I got so excited when I was reading this book. Dick was a protege of none other than our absolute favorite dirty dog defense attorney, Percy Foreman. Yeah, I knew it because it was Texas. Exactly. The myth, the man, and the legend. And of course, what other, I guess we've done a couple Texas cases, but our second ever case, Catherine actually represented Diane Zamara of the Texas Cadet Killers. No way. Yep. So his team had connections to two of our cases. Now, you're going to also love this. I bring it up a little bit later, too. Dick DeGaren's next case after Celeste, his very next one, was defending Robert Durst from the jinx. You are lying. No. In his Galveston trial. Whoa. Uh huh. So this guy is a powerhouse. I mean, he is the most famous defense attorney in all of Texas at this point. And 
kind of in the country. He's Percy Foreman's protege, you know? So the prosecution was very apprehensive. So apparently, like, one DA had retired at one point and it had been kicked to somebody else. And now Dick DeGaron is representing her. And their key witness is, like, a spurned lover convict with a history of mental illness. And that's, like, their big witness. They had such an uphill battle to fight that, like, this, like, awesome woman who became, like, the ADA, like, took it on. And she was like, I'm just going to do this. Let's get in there, you know? So the defense's story was that Celeste was completely innocent, of course. That Tracy Charlton was a sick, mentally ill woman obsessed with her. That Donna Goodson, who was, of course, testifying against Celeste now was a money-hungry hanger-on, and that the twins were spoiled brat devil children. Celeste's (gasps) only sin was being overly generous and trusting. (laughs) Wild. (laughs) So as the trial neared, the defense team picked three points to hammer on repeatedly. One was that Celeste's lifestyle was not evidence of guilt, like her spending all of his money. There was lots of accounts of her like sleeping with a bunch of people, which I didn't even get into because we all know her behavior. It didn't matter. Yeah. yeah. That sort of thing. Um, number two, that she was actually better off with Steve alive. And they just meant that she, now that he was dead, was having a- a trouble accessing his full wealth because you know, had to be divided among his kids. And there was all of these legalities set up that she couldn't have everything. So they were trying yeah. to argue that as his wife, she had access to his entire wealth versus now yeah. she didn't. As and his then, widow, yeah. Exactly. And that three, obviously, Celeste didn't kill Steve. Tracy did, and Tracy was even admitting it. So what are you, you going to yeah. say about that? And the prosecution's case was everything we already know, which is that Celeste manipulated a mentally ill, love-struck woman she was having an affair with to kill her husband for monetary gain. (laughs) It's like, seems pretty straightforward to me. (laughs) So the trial and jury selection began on January 29th, 2003. D.A. Wetzel, who's the one who uh, took over the case, outlined how the process would work. The jury would decide on guilt or innocence of all charges like they usually do. And then interestingly, Celeste would get to choose whether the jury or judge would sentence her if convicted. So I don't know if that's a Texas thing or just this time period in this county or whatever, but I thought that was interesting. Celeste chose the jury. The trial would end up lasting 48 long days. Wow. So... DeGaron seems like a real dick. You know, like Percy seemed like kind of a dick, but he had kind of a panache to him, you know? Yeah. DeGaron just seems like a dick. Um, He tried to play on people's prejudices by describing Tracy as a predatory lesbian who only hungered to turn straight women. Ew. Yeah, which also is gross in any time frame, but we're talking the early 2000s. Like, get with the picture, dude. Like, you're not in front of 1950s, like, housewives over here. No. Like, this is, like, the post-Will and Grace era. Like, like, you can't do that anymore. You can't say that. And do they have any sort of evidence or – testimony that she's hooked up with other girls before so it was actually not allowed so there was one other woman oh oh about celeste so they didn't have testimony that celeste had hooked up with other girls it was only hearsay because it was like what her brother said you know but there was apparently a woman that tracy had dated that had previously been straight and he was trying to get her admitted to be like this is a habit of her like going after 
straight married women and stuff like straight, that. Innocent straight women. <laughs> yeah. She's coming for your wives, boys. Watch out. <laughs> oh, God. The lady Kurt Russell is on the prowl only for married straight cooch. Oh my God. Yeah. So that was like a cornerstone of what he was saying, which was really gross. And then the most emotional testimony came from the twins who could barely meet their mother's eyes. They were just so traumatized from the whole experience. They testified to all of the instances where Celeste drugged Steve, where she verbally said she wanted him to die or mocked him, the relationship with Tracy and the other affairs, and of course, the phone conversation where Celeste admitted to hiring a hitman. And the defense ended up tearing into the girls, saying they were just out for money because they had joined the eldest Beard children in a lawsuit against Celeste to prohibit her recklessly spending more of Steve's estate and make sure that their part of the will was intact, which I think was actually also really nice of the older Beard kids to include his adopted daughters in that and getting an equal share, which shows so much magnanimity. I can't say that word. Magnanimity. You guys get the point. Just shows that they're magnanimous. There we go. (laughs) Because they could have like held it against those girls that Celeste was their mother, you know? For sure. For sure. Yeah. So the kids were a united front, which was really nice. So they just basically said that the twins were out for like $2 million because that would have been their share of the money or something. It had to have been so scary testifying knowing that your mom could still get off. They were – terrified because also they know Celeste so they know if she gets off she's gonna spend the rest of her life like chasing them down oh by the way this is a a funny side story speaking about Donna Goodson so apparently the girls like were in the wind and they got a restraining order against Celeste but she was still trying to find them she didn't know for sure but she thought that they might have taken some evidence because she couldn't find like journals and notes and photographs of her and Tracy and so she was like trying to hunt the girls down and like trying to find out who they were staying with and what they where they were and she knew that they were going to a wedding and so she (laughs) paid Donna Goodson and like put her up in a luxury hotel at the same like weekend of a wedding she thought that the girls were going to go to and she like told Donna to like drive around and look for the girls and like let her know as soon as she found them so she could come and like you know I don't know what she was going to do to them but like uh, confront them somehow and Donna Goodson said she like went to the hotel suite and just like ran up a bill and like drank the whole mini bar and got room service and just was like yeah I'm out looking I don't see them (laughs) and just like just like stole one of the robes and left Donna Goodson for president. Right? She's hilarious. (laughs) Yeah, but the girls did a great, great job. And actually, Tracy really did too. Tracy also very much held her own. So some people had either imagined like a coward submissive pawn or an evil predatory lesbian. And she came across as straightforward, honest, and believable. Through all of DeGaran's attacks on cross-examination, she remained calm, articulate, and thoughtful. So she, she like, proved him opposite because he was trying to say she was unstable, she was mentally ill, she was obsessive, and she just really came across as very genuine and very calm and very well-spoken. 
So it was time for closing arguments. And in this, DeGaron once again defamed Tracy, just talking all about how terrible she was up and down. But he also went the extra measure of mocking Steve Beard in a weird way. So he basically was saying he was refuting that Celeste told Tracy to shoot him in the stomach specifically. He was saying that like Celeste had never said that to Tracy. And he weirdly got a pillow and a sheet and laid down on a table and put this like giant pillow to like be like because he was so fat the only thing that tracy tarleton could even see was his stomach so of course she shot him in the stomach and like laid down on the table pretending to be an obese man what it just doesn't make any sense and it's so insensitive uh, like to his family like that he's mocking his weight even though he is the victim in this murder trial so this guy's a dick. Like, he does not have the charm of a Percy. But apparently he got Robert Durst off, so he must have some mojo. Yeah, um, maybe it just didn't shine through in this. Maybe he didn't know how to handle a lesbian. Apparently not. He closed with, you must return a not guilty verdict if you believe she was absolutely innocent, if she was definitely not guilty, if she was probably not guilty, or even if you only think she might not be guilty. That sounds like Percy. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? The yeah. state did not prove beyond a reasonable doubt because they don't have the evidence. All of this other trash, this soap opera, does not prove that Celeste is guilty. That's pure mm -hmm. Percy. Yeah. If you guys are, haven't listened to it and you're wondering who we're talking about, definitely the most interesting defense attorney we've covered so far is Percy Foreman, like we've mentioned. And he is in uh, Sweet is Candy, that episode, which is – Another wild ride with a crazy woman at the the center of it. So if you haven't checked it out, I highly encourage you to. And an axe murder. Oh, wait, that's, that's Candy Montgomery. That's a different candy. Oh, that's a different one. Yeah, Percy was incest candy. Oh. <laughs> and if you're interested in <laughs> – Thank you, Andy. If you're interested in another Texas case <laughs> with axe murder involved, check out Wait, All My Axes Live in Texas, episode four. <laughs> and I apologize for the mid-episode plug. We are going back to our regularly scheduled programming now. <laughs> Boop. So the jury deliberated for three whole days. And it was an agonizing wait for all sides. The eldest Beard children were incensed and sick to their stomachs about Daguerre laying on the table with the pillow, uh, mocking their father, while Celeste apparently was giggling from the defense table. Whoa. Was Ugh. Celeste sleeping with him? I don't know. Probably. Why not? Do they get conjugal visits? <laughs> the twins were terrified, like I said, that their mother would come out and spend the rest of her life searching for them. So, of course, yeah. like, their lives are hanging on this verdict. Yeah. So, finally, the jury came back in at 4.40 p.m. on the third day. The entire gallery held their breath as the foreperson read the verdict. And the forewoman looked exactly at Celeste as she said, guilty of capital murder and Amazing. guilty of injury to an elderly individual. 
Amazing. Amazing. The courtroom exploded in applause as tears flooded Celeste's eyes. At the sentencing hearing, Steve's granddaughter recounted what a loving human being he had always been to her and how devastated that the child she was pregnant with would never know her great-grandfather. Oh my god, that's so sad. So sad. His son Paul, who's like a tough career Navy man, broke down in sobs as he talked about the hole his father's murder had wrenched in his heart. He described how Celeste had prevented him from seeing Steve in both the last few years and last precious moments of his life, something that he would always bitterly regret. Of course, of course. The testimony concluded with the prosecutor eloquently arguing for a life sentence for Celeste, saying, A poet once wrote about people who die before their time. What they expect from us is that we gently remove the stain of injustice from their death. The jurors, he said, could do that for Stephen Beard. Give him justice and allow his soul to rest. Oh. DeGarren was a total sore loser. <laughs> his, like, his, basic last re- his basic last remarks were like, you guys all fucked up. This was a stupid verdict. <laughs> he was like mad at them. And he made the assumption that because it had taken three days – for them to come up with a verdict that somebody on the jury was a holdout and thought she was innocent. And he's like, I know one of you believed in her innocence. I know one of you wasn't sure that she was guilty and you did the wrong thing and you let them like talk you into it. And now you have a chance to right that wrong and make sure she doesn't get a long sentence because this is a travesty of justice and stuff. And the, (laughs) the jury was like, no, we were all on board. We all thought she was super guilty. <laughs> they were absolutely like, yeah, I mean, we were convinced of it. I don't know. He read us wrong, man. Yeah, they said that uh, the jurors would later say DeGarren had read them wrong and that there had been no dissent in their ranks. We just wanted to make sure everyone felt comfortable with it, said the foreman, Rosales. We just took our time. As before, they dealt out the maximum penalty, a life sentence, and to send a message that they had no doubt about their verdict, a $10,000 fine on top. A $10,000 fine for what? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Is that like part of the injury to the elderly maybe? I I have no idea what the $10,000 fine is for their court's time or something. I'd like the jury pulled, DeGarren challenged. Later that year, in Galveston, like I said, he'd mount a masterful defense and win an acquittal for Robert Durst, the New York heir who admitted killing his neighbor, then dismembering and disposing of his body. That victory would make worldwide headlines. But this day, in an Austin courtroom, the man who was arguably Texas's most famous living defense attorney had lost to two talented prosecutors, and it tasted bitter. Bitter grapes. <laughs> oh. Also, like, he's a horrible person for getting Robert Durst off. Exactly. This guy's bad. He's bad news. The judge did as he asked and polled the 12 jurors, but to no avail. They all agreed that for what she'd done to Steve, Celeste should spend the rest of her life in jail. Oh, poor Celeste. Nobody feels bad for Celeste. No one feels bad for you. (laughs) So Tracy received a 20-year sentence for her part in the murder, but she was paroled in 2011 after only serving 10. Uh, She now resides quietly in the San Antonio area. And actually, it was nice. There was a a 
article about her in San Antonio where the community actually was like welcoming her and helping her get on her feet. So they weren't holding against her, her role in this. Um, Donna Goodson ended up briefly in the same prison as Celeste after she falsified Texas driver's licenses. (laughs) Donna Goodson, you card. Uh, Obviously, I'm sure she's out now still causing trouble. Celeste still contends to this day that she's innocent and she, I'm so glad she's the only one still in jail. Oh, I know. She's the only one. Yeah. And she co-wrote a cookbook with some other inmates called From the Big House to Your House. No, Whoa. thanks. We're good on putting fucking poison in our food, <laughs> Yeah, bitch. thank you. I don't want to take any recipes from you. Also, I don't need to learn how to make toilet wine. Thank you. She's like, she's like <laughs> spicy Everclear rigatoni. <laughs> According to Wikipedia, she is divorced from husband number five, unsurprisingly. Her daughters do not speak to her. She will be eligible for parole at the very earliest in 2042. Um, That's scary. She'll be like 80, I think, around then. But nobody thinks she's going to get parole anyway because it's like a Pamela Smart situation. She won't admit to it. They don't like it when you won't admit your guilt and say you've learned from your decisions you know why didn't they LWAP her I don't know I really don't know why they didn't okay in 2004 Christina and Jennifer were reunited with their long lost sister the baby girl Celeste gave up for adoption oh cool yeah apparently their little sister was a freshman in college and she finally sought out her biological family and found out her father was dead and her mother was in prison she was like what the hell? And she found her <laughs> twin sisters and they kind of filled her in on everything. So it's really nice. The three of them are still in touch. And Christina and Jennifer, every Christmas, uh, they go to a gathering of families that have been affected by um, homicide and violence. And they all share together stories of their loved ones that they lost and decorate a Christmas tree and they put an ornament up for Steve. Oh, yeah, which is really sweet. But in a sad news and truly bizarre twist of fate, Jennifer Beard was shot in the stomach while attending a party in 2017. So apparently she was living with this guy, Randall Jones. It was just a roommate situation, not a romantic situation. And this guy was totally wasted. And when people tried to get him to go to bed at 6 a.m. when the party was winding down, he went totally berserk and fired a gun several times into the crowd, killing one man who was bravely trying to get the gun away from him and terribly wounding Jennifer. So the guy ended up pleading guilty and he received 40 years, but Jennifer required 10 surgeries and she ended up recuperating with her now married sister, Christina, while getting back on her feet. It looks like I found a GoFundMe for uh, Jennifer that raised over $25,000. So at least that's there's that. And I saw that one Jimmy Martinez donated $100 and says, get better. I love you always. So I think that was Celeste. BMW. BMW donated and must still be in touch with the girls, which is sweet. Oh, good old BMW. So of course, you know, we're wishing Jennifer and Christina the best out there. You know, they- yes. There was more victims in this story than just Steve. 
I mean, Celeste ruined everybody's lives. She touched They were so brave. They were so brave and they've been through so, so much. So wherever you guys are, I hope that you are living the best life and you have our utmost respect. Along with the beard kids. With the beard kids too. Yeah. They're all, they're all great kids. I mean, at least the beard kids got to have the example of their parents loving marriage for so many years. Yeah. 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 So that's that is the wild roller coaster ride that is Celeste Beard. Wow. Uh fuck that bitch. <laughs> yeah, fuck that bitch for real. So thanks to everyone out there for listening to this sordid story. If you've made it this far, please take a minute to give us a five-star rating. Reviews, of course, super duper help us out. So please drop a line. Um, we will be forever in your debt and our new best friends. Yeah, it really helps us a lot. We get really excited about it. Yeah, so thanks, guys. And also, guys, we are returning with Cucktoberfest number three this week. So please uh, tune in on Monday to catch our latest stories. I actually have a story that connects to Celeste Beard in a crazy way. So definitely come back for that. Andy, can you give me any hints about what you might be doing? Yeah, it's going to be sticky. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to find out what that means. (laughs) There's so many ways that could go. (laughs) So, in conclusion, guys, throw out your trifling trophy wives before it's too late. Always trust your gut instinct. Always. That should be like a love murder golden rule. And, as always, remember, we're all just one bad relationship away from getting murdered. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye.